Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. And hello, Mike. How are you doing? Great <laughs> to be really, with you. I'm really good. We were just talking off air about, I, I sort of challenged myself to not give you an, an intro, which feels like really uncomfortable. I, I like want to big you up, but it's there's something much more natural about just saying hi. And, uh, and this will relate to something I'm sure we get into is about you know, ego and our relationship to ego and uh, right. yeah, uh, how, how that uh, contributes or otherwise to our happiness. So yes, so the, you know, we're having this call. You've written this book, One Planet, uh, sorry, One People, One Planet, seven, six, six universal truths for being happy together. Um, uh, yeah, a, a wonderful book, which sort of lays out these, these principles, these truths for leading a, a happier life, which, which I've um, not read all of it, but I've had a, a, a good read of. Um, plus, of course, there's a, your whole backstory of entrepreneurship and what you've done in the world and the contribution you've made. So there's so much that we could get into in this conversation. Uh, but yeah, I think before we, perhaps before we get to the, to the book and your central message there, can we give the listeners a bit of your backstory? You know, where, where did Mark, Mike start out? And yeah, some of uh, what led you to be here today. So when I was a college student, uh, for some strange reason, I fell in love with the concept of building organizations. I thought it would be really awesome to bring humans together have an organization with that's creating real value products or services that was a great place to work where people would be excited. And that, that challenge really intrigued me. So I, I went on and studied uh, entrepreneurship and organization development all the way through to a PhD. Um, I wasn't very smart. I went straight through school. I didn't take any time off. And so I finished my graduate degree uh, as Dr. Glauser when I was 27 years old. And I started teaching at the University of North Carolina. And in my first class, I, I uh, turned around, it was an executive MBA class, and it was clear I was the youngest guy in the room by probably 15 years. Right. <laughs> and so I thought, well, if I'm ever going to be a thought leader in this field, I got to leave the safe harbor of academics and go out into the real world. And so I stayed uh, four years, had a great experience, but then I went out to actually build companies. And it was a little frightening because, you know, as a professor, if you go out and try to build companies and then you fail, you go back to the business school as the guy that failed, that couldn't do it in the real world. Right. And so for the next uh, decade or so, I built a number of companies and uh, we were fortunate that they were successful. And uh, I sold uh, one of them, a large company to a public company in Toronto on the uh, Toronto Exchange. And so then I was free to do whatever I wanted. And I, so I went back to academics and um, I was really shocked that what was being taught in entrepreneurship had nothing to do with what I had just done as an entrepreneur. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't the real world. And so I started what I call this oral history project. I've been interviewing entrepreneurs all over the world, and uh, recording them uh, with high definition video. And uh, we have thousands of those and we oh, use wow. that database then to create uh, curriculum and training programs. So we have uh, university courses, we have high school courses, we have some corporate training courses, government courses, and we basically teach people how to start and build businesses and earn their independence and freedom and do things that they love and are passionate about. So I've been doing that most of my career since I uh, sold those companies. Wow, wow. And that just seems like such a, a far more sensible way to do it, build from the bottom up and build insights from people who've actually successed or had experiences of failure in business. That seems to make a lot more sense. 
yeah, it was it was a great experience. Uh, we learned a ton. The the company we finally sold, we had about six hundred employees. It was a wow. multi million dollar food company, and we sold it to the public company in Toronto. And, and uh, it was interesting. They I got actually I had three offers on the company at the time, and they said, uh, you know, there's two two conditions that are deal killers. Number one is we're moving the office to Dallas. We don't really need your staff, and everyone was okay with that. And I didn't really want to run a company I no longer owned. And then he said the second condition, and this is this is a deal breaker, is you have to take cash. And I thought, really? Okay. <laughs> I thought they were going to offer stock in the company, and they had a lot of cash they had raised, and they needed to expend spend that cash. And so they wrote a very big check, and the next week I was gone. Wow. What about your poor staff, though? Did they all get fired? Well, they, well, they kept uh, the, they moved the executive staff and all of my colleagues were interested and willing to move on. You know, mm. they were people with like PhD in biochemistry and very talented people. Right. They had a lot of opportunities and they did well with the company. Yeah. And then they kept everybody else. They kept all the employees that were okay. working in the company. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, great. And so what the, was, oh, sorry. Just the executive team that, uh, that didn't, most of them didn't want to move and mm. everyone went off and did their own thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what did you, what, okay. So was that, so you said you started several, was that, were there some, some companies before that? Yeah, I started a, uh, a company in the real estate industry. I've started some consulting firms, started the wholesale and the retail food company. And, uh, you know, today we still own, I still own a real estate development company and I own this online curriculum development company. Wow. And, uh, wow. So I still have my hands in several things. And, and I, I know this is almost impossible to do, but like what, I don't know, what are the top three factors that you think made a difference in the success of those businesses? Well, it's actually uh, all outlined in my book, Main Street Entrepreneur, which was a, uh, uh, came out in 2016, but we we traveled across the country and uh, by bicycle, as you and I discussed, yeah. and interviewed 100 entrepreneurs and tried to see if there were common elements that led to success that were not present in the startups that failed. And so we outlined what those are. But uh, the first one is uh, you have to be very very passionate about what you're doing. Starting a business is hard work. And there are lots of opportunities to quit. And if you really believe you're making a difference, you're doing something you really love, you're making a difference in the world, you're creating jobs for family members, whatever that purpose is, that has to be really strong and get you through the hard times and the peaks and the valleys of entrepreneurship. And then uh, you have to start a business in an area that you understand. Um, you have to build on what you already know. People start businesses in industries they have no knowledge of, and those are the ones that tend to fail. So if you've been working in an industry, what are the problems that you've seen? Uh, can you get customers to commit to your product or service before you even start the company? And uh, so we have a model in the book. It's called the NERCM model. You have to have identif identified a primary need. You have to have experience. You have to have customers saying that they will support and vet that uh, business. Uh, you need Then you need a financial model that works. Um, and so you have to... We call that a true business opportunity versus just a pipe dream or an idea. Right. And then, you know, you have to build the right team. You, you're not going to have all the skills yourself that are needed to start a company. 
And so you bring in people not that are like you, but they're different from you. And you have mm. to build the right kind of team and cover all the bases. Uh, you have to be very, very frugal. Uh, most startups don't get funding. And so they learn how to bootstrap and finagle and they become the low cost provider in their industry. Uh, you know, some companies uh, borrow a lot of money, take on a lot of debt, take a lot on a lot of partners. And, and uh, if you have a lot of money, you tend to spend a lot of money. But if you don't have a lot, then you tend to focus on sales, early sales and customer satisfaction. Right. So they're just, there's a handful of things like that that we tried to practice in our companies. And uh, I think they were uh, keys to our success. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it resonates with something I read about how the average age of a successful con- entrepreneur is 50 or something or 52 or something. Be- and that would tally with what you're saying is you've got to have experience in a sector. Yeah. You'd, you Presumably, you'd know customers who'd come with you, right? That would make sense. Yeah, if you look at the data every year, uh, global entrepreneurship data on who is successful, uh, as you go up the age demographic, the higher you go, the more success rate you see. So the lowest success rate is with the younger, you know, 20-ish, teenage, 20-ish, although some of them have big successes. But as you get up into the 40s and 50s, they know an industry, you know, really, really well. You've worked in it. Mm. And you can get customers to commit to buy things before you even start the company and say, hey, if I do this, would you be interested? And we've seen so many entrepreneurs that have customers when they launch their company that have committed already buy the product or the service. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So experience uh, helps. Right, right. And I guess even with the, the young kids who are successful, the, the pack probably still applies, right? They've just got an experience in, a, in an emerging field where there aren't very many 40 or 50-year-olds who have that experience. Yeah, or then they bring in partners that fill in the yeah. gaps. Yeah. And then there's this concept we call user entrepreneurs. Um, you can gain your experience by being a serious, regular user of the product line that you're interested in. You don't necessarily have to have worked in the industry. So, you know, user entrepreneurs, they know all the products, they know which ones work, which ones they don't like, they know what the missing pieces are. And an interesting study I just read that after 50% of all businesses fail, and of those that succeed, uh, more than half of them are serious user entrepreneurs. So they're only about 15% of the startup entrepreneurs, but the ones that survive, they're 50% of the ones that survive because they really like the products, they know the products, mm. uh, they use the products. Yeah. And so that's, you know, experience doesn't have to mean you've worked in the industry. It has to, it means you have to really, really know the product lines from the customer's perspective. Right, right. Yeah, that would, that would make a lot of sense. Um, and okay, what, what's your number one screw up in business that you learned from? <laughs> Well, the first company I started was my least successful, and I was an industry I didn't understand at all. <laughs> and I partnered with people I didn't know very well. I didn't know uh, how well we would work, and I trusted uh, them, and uh, it just didn't go very well. It was a real estate company, and then I smartened up a little bit and started. You know, the next company we started, my wife uh, has a degree in health, fitness, nutrition. Right. And I have this degree in business building. And so we combined those skills in a, we were the first ones in America to create a whole line of frozen dessert products uh, with no fat. It was frozen desserts, frozen yogurt, ice cream type products, but they were low calorie, non-fat. And we wanted them to taste as good as the premium ice cream products in the marketplace. And uh, so we were quite successful with that innovation, that company. Right, right. 
And uh, that makes that makes sense. But in real estate, you you just hadn't had a lot of experience buying and selling property. It was that I do now, but I did not at the time. Yet. <laughs> and we learn from those, you know. You learn the most from yeah. ones that fail. If you keep succeeding, you get a little bit proud and cocky, and uh, you're not humble enough sometimes. And it's something interesting you said about not really knowing the partners. So you just didn't didn't have good existing relationships. Was was that part of the problem? Yeah, I, I had some investors that wanted to invest in real estate in the United States. And I had to go find some people that knew how to find the properties. And I just didn't, uh, I didn't know the industry. I had the funding, but I didn't have the partnership relationships at the time. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And thank you for answering that question, right? I think that's, uh, you know, to your credit. Um, so, so this book. Uh, one people, one planet. Um, I, I guess a bit of the background to that, because this is a a book that is clearly founded on a huge amount of scholarship. <laughs> so this is one of the questions I have: is as a professor of entrepreneurship, as an active entrepreneur, you know, how do you find the time, and 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 how did you come to have so much knowledge about these various philosophical traditions and religions and so on? Well, a, a couple things uh, I think motivated that book. What uh, happened early on in my career, I was asked to go live in uh, Saudi Arabia and help build a new business program there. And I was offered the job and I said, yeah, I'd love to go. Uh, I love traveling. I love living abroad, different countries, different cultures. And the interviewer told me, he said, now, if you take this job, you can't ever talk about politics and you can't ever talk about religion or you will be terminated. Yeah. He said, can you live with that? I said, of course, I'll be a guest in your country and I'll be sensitive to that. And then when I got over to the university, it was the University of Petroleum and Minerals in Dahran, Saudi Arabia. All of my Saudi colleagues were asking about my religious background uh, constantly. Hey, what faith are you? Are you a Christian? Da, da, da. And I kept saying, hey, I can't talk about that. And they said, no, no, you, you can't talk about your religion, but we can talk to you about ours. You want to know about Islam? I said, of course, I'd love to. And so I, they arranged for me to meet with one of the religious leaders while I was there. And he agreed to teach me Arabic, give me Arabic lessons. And I agreed to take these Islamic religious discussions. And uh, what I was so impressed with is that with most religions, if you strip away the mystical, supernatural uh, concepts of did we live before we were born? What's going to happen when we die? And what is the nature of God? If you strip all those out and you look at what these religious founders taught about happiness on earth and civility in communities, those concepts are almost identical. So I noticed that reading through the Quran and the Sunnah and the Hadith uh, compared to my Christian background, that the principles for happiness and peaceful living were, were almost identical. And so that kind of launched me into a, a study of world religions, which I've been doing most of my career. And uh, so I went to, you know, the Hindu Vedas and the Mahabharata and the Bhagavad Gita in Hinduism. I went to the Pali Canon in Buddhism. And so I just kept looking for the teachings on happiness and, and civil communities. And I kept getting the exact same concepts over and over and over again, stated a little bit differently, but in you know, beautiful language. And so I had all these notes up in my file for years. And then when COVID hit, uh, I traveled around the world during the summers to our uh, international locations. I couldn't travel. So I pulled those notes down and said, this would be a good time to write this book. <laughs> uh, 
So that was one motivator. The second motivator is uh, I've been very concerned about the epidemic of despair in our country and around the world. Uh, depression, anxiety are at higher levels with every demographic age group that, than we've ever seen before. Just some quick uh, statistics. Uh, studies here in the U.S. show that high school students, 40% of them uh, feel a sense of uh, persistent sadness, four out of 10. And 20% say they, uh, they have thoughts, they entertain thoughts of suicide from time to time. That's one out of five. Mm-hmm. At the college level, 40% of our students say they're so depressed that there are days they can't do their schoolwork during the semester. And 60% say they're lonely much of the time in their life. And then overall, uh, the National Institute of Mental Health just issued a study saying 21% of the adult population is experiencing some form of mental or emotional illness. So I thought, you know, that combined with my interest in world religions, it was a perfect time to pull all this content together and, and write this book and get it in the marketplace. Right, right. Yeah. And, and it's a, I mean, it's remarkable. I was telling you this before we came on in the way that you've, you, you lay out in very simple terms the parallels between the, the different religious traditions and, and philosophical traditions and, uh, and, and demonstrate to the reader what it is you found yourself when you were reading through them. And I, you know, I really appreciated uh, the way you've, you've laid it all out. I, I thought that was um, really helpful for me. And I've, got, I, I've never studied in any depth any of these um, religions, but it, it, and, and so it was very accessible for me. It was very easy for me to, you know, to absorb yeah, I, what you're uh, saying. You know, there's a real uh, turning from organized religion around the world. Uh, people are bailing out of the faith they were raised in, in every faith. And um, so I realized, well, a lot of people don't like religion. And a lot of reasons they don't like it. They don't like the modern day deviations from the original teachings and all the sects that compete and contend with each other. But if you go back to the original, the earliest manuscripts, I mean, they're beautiful. They're very inspiring to read. They're very insightful, very helpful. But I recognize that not everyone likes religion. Some people bristle about Mm. religion. So I thought, okay, next I'm going to go to the philosophers. Maybe people will be, uh, take uh, that, find that more palatable than the religious founders. So I studied the Asian philosophers, the Greeks, the Romans, Europeans, Again, found the exact same teachings on personal happiness and community civility. And then I thought, well, if you don't like religion or philosophy, let's go to science. So I went to the last 20 years of research in positive psychology. and There are thousands of articles and studies that vet these principles. Uh, university professors didn't want to study religious concepts or philosophical concepts. They were too soft. They weren't scientific enough. But they're actually now doing research showing that all these things that we're taught have a huge impact on our life. They make a big difference in real time. If, if you live one of these principles today, you'll be happier today. If you live all of them uh, over time, they'll become a permanent part of our character. And we just become happier and more joyful. And we're able to live more civilly in our communities, our neighborhoods, and our families, and our organizations. So combining those three sources of knowledge, uh, the writings of the religious founders, the teachers of the philosophers, the latest research in science, I thought, you know, that's a good way to present these concepts that are believable to just about everybody. And then I try to write books that aren't boring, which is hard when I write business books. So I thought, I'm going to tell the, teach these principles through the stories of remarkable individuals that have turned their lives around from despair to genuine joy by actually applying the concepts. 
So the book has great stories. Uh, the principles are laid out, I think, pretty clearly. And then the stories show impact of the principles in people's lives. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, I attest to that. Yeah, absolutely. And so, okay, so let's talk about the, the, these truths then. And maybe we should start with where we kind of opened in terms of this giving, giving, up, giving up the ego. Uh, yeah. Talk to us a little bit about the importance of giving up ego and, uh, okay. in pursuit of happiness. So we've used the word ego in modern times to mean someone that's really proud, really self-centered, really high on themselves, really cocky. But the ego has been used throughout history uh, in the religious texts and in philosophy. It's really a composite of all of our self-perceptions. It's what we think of ourselves. And those perceptions have come from our early life with teachers and with parents and with peers and with culture and the media. And so we have these images of who we are. And the Hindus and Buddhists call those fabrications of self. They're illusionary. They're not really what we really are or could become. So in addition to this fabricated self, we have this true self, which is really all about our human potential as human beings on this planet. There are many, many things we can do with our lives. But these self-perceptions, this false ego, uh, limits us. We won't do anything outside of what the ego says we're capable of doing. And so the first concept of losing the ego is really giving up these fabricated images that I'm too tall or too thick or too thin or not good at this or not athletic enough or whatever. You, you let go of all those and you say, hey, I'm a work in progress and I can become many things. And I'm going to go out in the world and really have great experiences and think more about others than myself. When you do that, it's such a freeing experience. And the way that you, you know, the way that you really let go of that and realize this fabricated image is not who I am is you have to do things that are outside your comfort zone. Um, you set a goal to do something that maybe you, you think you're not very athletic, you're not very coordinated, but you say, I'm going to go run a 5K. I'm going to start mm. walking and running and whatever. Then you realize, hey, I'm different than I thought I was. And then that sets up a positive feedback loop. It's an upward spiral of then trying something else a little more challenging and then something else a little more challenging. And you keep getting reinforcement from these small steps and these small successes. And you come to realize that I can probably be anything I want to. Mm -hmm. I don't need to be bound by this fabricated set of self-perceptions. It's kind of like, you know, um, problem with the ego is we think about ourselves all the time. We get up in the morning and look at the mirror and how do I look today? And what kind of clothes should I wear? And am I going to say the right things at this meeting? And we wonder at the end of the day if people like like this. And it's like we're on this claustrophobic treadmill of self-centeredness. It, it's kind of like we're the actor in our own movie. And when you can shed that and get rid of that, it is such a freeing, liberating, joyful experience. And so the first principle starts with ourselves, realizing that uh, all these thoughts we have may not that came from our maybe our parents or teachers. It's not necessarily who we need to be in this life. Yeah. And, and you demonstrated that beautifully at the start of this interview because you said to me, hey, you don't need to introduce me as Professor this and uh, just just say hi, Mike. And, uh, and actually you pushed me to get out of my comfort, comfort, comfort zone because there's probably part of my ego that likes the fact, you know, I'm, I'm interviewing this august professor. But you just said, hey, call me Mike. And it, you're right, it has this freeing quality, doesn't it? Just in that kind of micro moment, I, I experienced a bit of that. We've got, got a, one of my favorite stories in the book is a friend, very good friend of mine now, David DeRocher, who spent 20 years in prison in Los Angeles. 
And he just developed this image that he was the toughest, meanest, baddest guy. He did a number of sequential prison terms, two years, three years, five years, 10 years. And then he finally was arrested uh, and had a 29-year sentence. And uh, he, was the, the, he was the king of the white group, the white gang in Los Angeles. And in prison, they said he held the keys in the prison. He was the guy that ran the prison, you know. And uh, he got, the judge gave him a chance to go to this rehabilitation program. He had one chance. And he said, if you screw up, you're coming back to serve all 29 years. And he got out and realized that he always really liked people. And when he was younger, he was a decent guy and he cared. And he, he got this image from being in the wrong crowds and from committing crimes. And, and he, he was able to give up that, that image of Dave Droch, a bad guy. And he became the director of the rehabilitation program for eight years in Los Angeles. And now he's moved to Salt Lake City and opened a place called the Other Side Academy, where he has 100 convicts all living together. And he's, he's reshaping their perceptions of self. And they're building companies and they're being successful and they're having their prison uh, terms excused. And uh, he's just one of the happiest guys that I know and have ever met. Brilliant guy. He could run a Fortune 500 company. But he's transitioned from that criminal boss to a, a really decent, loving, happy human being. And so he's, he's one example I use in the, in the book. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a very yeah, inspiring, inspiring story. And, and the question that's coming to me right, before we get to, the, to these other universal truths is, is what's the mechanism for, for, for instruction, if you like, or for, for having people adopt these truths? So we've lost organized religion. We're not sitting down and listening to the preacher, you know, every, every Sunday. We're not, we're not getting this instruction necessarily from our parents at the dinner table in the same way. In fact, most of the institutions we're exposed to take us in the other direction. They're encouraging us to develop this false self. Yeah. What, where, what, are, what, what can we create? I mean, writing books is great and you with this message is awesome, but like, what, what's, how do we ritualize this? How do we institutionalize this in a way that can draw in people? That's our challenge. That's the mission of our organization, One People, One Planet. So the book is only one part of that. It's kind of a foundational piece, the cornerstone. But we have a high school training program. We have a college training program, a college course in happiness and civility. We have a public uh, course. It's on our website, onepeopleoneplanet.com. The people can go and watch all these videos of all these individuals. And then we have a corporate civility program that organizations can uh, implement to teach these concepts to create stronger cultures with better relationships in organizations. And then, you know, I do a lot of podcasts and public speaking, and we're just, we're evangelists, we're out preaching, you know? <laughs> yeah, I guess that's right. That this is the new pulpit, right? In a sense. Yeah. 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 That, that makes sense. And it also makes sense to piggyback on the, the institutions that do exist, like corporations, schools. Yeah that people are participating in. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, that, that, makes some, that makes some sense. And yeah, it's interesting, in, in the last sort of, I don't know, in the last few months, you're the, you're the second business thinker, if you like, who's talking about the importance of, well, he, he, he frames it as virtues, like a reconnection to virtue um, in, yeah. our, in, our, in the workplace. Uh, and in society at large, and um, you're, you're obviously you're framing it slightly differently, but it's the, for me at least, it's a, it's a similar pr principle in, in terms of what we need 
as society right now is as a find a way back to these universal truths, these these virtues. Yeah, it's interesting. The uh, the DEI movement, diversity, equity, and inclusion. That movement is huge worldwide, and even during COVID, when jobs were uh, you know being shed and people were being fired and laid off, the number of personnel hired in the DEA space in large corporations was about 123% gain. And uh, the challenge, it's having some challenges. It's a pretty new movement, but they typically get people together. And, and the criticism that tends to emphasize is group membership based on something that has nothing to do with performance, you know, mm. on immutable characteristics like, you know, race or ethnicity. And uh, I, I think it's really hard to mandate virtue. It's hard to mandate civility. It's hard to enforce it, monitor it. It only comes as we develop civil values and we eternalize civil values. So our training programs really teach people how to do that. And, and we're, we're pretty clear. We say, don't take our word for it. None of these religious founders ask you to take their word for it. None of the philosophers, they all said, just try it. Try it and see what happens. Gain your own conviction. And that's why I love these concepts. Uh, you know, one of them is doing good deeds daily. If you get up in the morning, instead of thinking about self, you say, is there someone that might need something from me today? And you go out looking and uh, being generous and willing to, maybe you're going to carry some groceries or shovel someone's walks or give up your seat on the bus or maybe call a friend that you think might be struggling. Uh, you will be happier for doing that that day. Yeah. And so our, our uh, message is, hey, just try it. Let's, let's do an experiment for 30 days. You know, try doing some of these things and then take, keep a journal and say, am I happier because I did these things? And we're convinced you will be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love the story in that chapter about, is it Richard and Carrie that in their marriage? Oh, yeah. 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 Richard Paul Evans. Uh, I can briefly tell that story. Yeah, he, sure. Please. Oh, he's a good friend of mine. He's a New York Times bestselling author. And uh, I mean, his career just took off. He, he got huge advances from publishers and had bestsellers and uh, he was traveling a lot. His marriage started to unwind and unravel because they weren't together and he was becoming famous. And, and uh, they got to the point that it was so severe. They just thought there's no way to save this marriage. And it just, it, it broke him up because he didn't want, he didn't want that. He wanted to stay married. He wanted to figure out how to repair it. He was in a hotel uh, in Atlanta, just, uh, they had a very serious bite on the phone and he just thought, you know, I got to do something. I, I got to try one more time. I can't give up. He said he got a clear impression of what he should do. And he went home and the next morning, um, he said he went home to a very chilly house and got up and said to his wife, Carrie, Carrie, is there something I can do today to make your life better? And she said, what are you talking about, Richard? He said, no, I, I'm serious. What can I do to make your life better? Please trust me. Let me do something. So she said, okay, go out and clean the garage. So we went out for a couple hours and cleaned the garage. <laughs> Next day, Carrie, what can I do to make your life better? She said, clean the kitchen. So he cleaned the kitchen. And after about a week, she said, you know, what's going on here, Richard? And he said, you know, I want to save this marriage and I want to, you know, be the kind of person you need. And, and then she broke down and said, hey, I think it's my fault. And, we, and so then she started doing the same thing. Richard, what can I do to make your life better? They just started paying more attention to each other and doing good deeds for each other daily. And within a few months, he said, I, I really, really love my wife, but I also really like her now. And they've been married ever since and they're happy. And uh, 
you know, good. He, he swears good deeds, doing of good deeds saved his marriage. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like, and, and it's such a simple idea. Yeah. Um, what can I do today to help somebody or do a good deed? It's a lot of, well, it's simple all the way through, isn't it? It's, it's, I think that, yes, the simplicity I love about, um, you know, what you've articulated here. Yeah, and a lot of people, you know, will look at the book and say, well, we, I know these things already, but the question is, are we doing them? Mm. Uh, the book is to outline them in one place and try to get people committed, motivated to actually do them. Yeah. And I think it spreads. Yeah, yeah. One, one, of, the, one of the crews I, the that I had a, a question mark around was this refrain from judgment. So... On the one hand, I know experientially, right? If I've got hooked on someone and I know I'm in a negative judgment about them, I, I find that if I get myself unhooked, you know, it, it liberates me. I, I return to a more you know, loving state and it's, 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 it's a good thing to do that. And I also know that a lot of these religions would have had a concept of sin, right? And, and I know that when I've judged my own behavior, and considered myself to have been sinful, that's actually served me in becoming more virtuous. So, I'm, I'm, I, so my question is, doesn't, doesn't judgment actually, does it a positive role in us becoming uh, happy in some way? Yeah, I, I think that's true to some extent. I think more what I'm talking about in the book is just our tendency to develop, to develop really superficial images of people. You know, right. we develop images of other people in the same way we develop images of ourselves. They're fabrications. So we tend to see something superficial like uh, color, ethnicity, religion, political affiliation. And then because, uh, you know, people are complex, we just fill in all the pieces, missing pieces, and construct a personality for them. Oh, if he's in this political party, he's like this. If mm. she's in this religion, she's like this. What that does is it alienates us, it separates us as groups, it creates divisions. So we don't even want to have interaction with those people. And what we find is that if you get together and you talk and you do things together, we realize we're more similar than we are different. And that we all have the same desire to be happy. We all want the best for our family members and our friends. We all want to live in safe, uh, civil neighborhoods. And, and so... Uh, the solution here is we just have to spend more time with people that we perceive to be different than us. And then we find that we're more the same. And what, what the reason that makes it happier is now we have more relationships. We have a bigger pool of people to have relationships with and human beings don't do well in isolation. We do better when we are with other people and we like other people. They like us and we talk to each other. And so breaking down those judgments um, opens up the whole world. I just, you know, this week I was with a group of people that uh, very, very different and diverse in terms of religious philosophies and backgrounds and ethnicities. And we had a phenomenal time for three hours. And we all walk away great friends and want to keep getting together. And so if you break down those barriers, it makes your life richer and happier, basically. Right. Right. Great example in the book is uh, R. Shea Cooper, who's from Chicago. And he grew up in the midst of the gangs in Chicago. He had three gang territories he had to walk through to get to school. And he got beat up. He had to step over bodies, blood on the streets. He had to wear the right colors. He couldn't wear his hat the wrong way. And 
one day a couple showed up and they wanted to form a rowing team at the high school, which is one of the most violent high schools in America at the time, Manly High School. And the students were very reluctant, but finally they convinced a handful of them to join this rowing team and they were from different gangs. And they quickly realized that uh, they had all been through trauma. They all had hardships, that their perceptions of each other, this hatred was based on what they had heard about each other, not on any personal interaction with each other. Mm. And they started really liking each other. They realized that if they didn't pull together and row together, they were never going to win races or get back to the dock. And it was so successful, them all becoming great friends that Arshay Cooper said, I think this might work with the Chicago Police Department. So they went to the police department and got a bunch of white cops to sit in his boat and row with them. And the same thing happened. They realized, you know, we've all had trauma. We all want to be happy. We all have families. We want to have civil communities. And they became great friends and they're still friends today. And so the point is, is that, you know, in terms of happiness and civility, stripping away those judgments that separate us and cause division. That's what this chapter is really about is learning to say, hey, I'm willing to go visit other religions. I'm willing to visit other cultures. I'm willing to talk to people from different political parties. You know, it's so sad here in America. There was a study uh, after our last election, 78 percent of members of the Democratic Party said they would never date or develop friends with anyone that voted for Donald Trump. So now they're cutting out half the world, half of the United States, they will never be friends with. And the Republican Party said 48% said we'll never interact with people that voted for Hillary Clinton. And so what, again, you're creating groups and you're creating groups that you will not have anything to do with. And that limits our joy and our happiness, our right. pool of potential friends. Yeah. And so the, the act here is to notice when we're in that inner judgment yeah. um, and, and let it go and, and interact with people in spite yeah, of that I, judgment. Yeah. I think you can read about it and try to change your mind, but your heart doesn't change until you have that interaction with others from different mm. faiths, political parties, races ethnicities, religions, whatever. And uh, so anyway, that, that's a critical part of building civil communities and civil organizations is to look at our biases. Some of them are implicit. We don't even know we have them. And I reference in the book, the Harvard Association tests. You can go online and take them all for free. And it's fascinating. They're tests about, are you biased towards this religion or this political party or this race or this group or this, the LGBT community. And you take these exams and you get results that are quite um, informative about what's really going on in your head about people that are different than you. And anyone right. can go do that. I'd recommend that people go and try it. Yeah. No, that, that, that does make sense. Like holding a mirror up to our prejudices. Yeah. But, but then back to this, this other kind of query that I have in my mind, though, is, is there a role for having prejudice in developing virtue, in being able to say that's wrong and either I should not be doing that or that person shouldn't be doing that? Like, does, does, that, does that have a role? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that um, I think the important thing here is to separate the act or behavior from the individual, that this action is wrong and I don't endorse it. But it doesn't mean that that whole race is wrong. 
mm. or that that person is a bad person. They're, they're engaging in bad behaviors. I'll give you an example, uh, one on forgiveness, the chapter on forgiveness. I interviewed a woman whose 18-year-old son was shot and killed by a stranger. Uh, the man walked up behind him, pulled out a gun, shot him and killed him. No reason at all. And she had this incredible hatred uh, and anger and despair and depression. She was suicidal for almost 20 years. She couldn't let go of this. And she hated um, the Hispanic community because the guy that shot her son was Hispanic. She hated all, everyone. She hated the attorneys that represented the young man. Uh, she hated you know, anything that had to do with him. And uh, after about 20 years, he finally he got life in prison without parole. And after 20 years, he wrote a letter to her and he just said, you know, I am so sorry for what I did. A day does not go by when I don't think about how I ruined your life and your family and took your son from you. And, and uh, he said, you know, my family did not teach me this. This is my own action. My family's good. Don't take it out of my family or my community. And he owned up to it. And they started writing letters back and forth. And, you know, he signed them. George and she signed her sigh, and eventually she was signing hers love sigh. He was signing hers his love George, and then they started talking on the phone for his you know weekly phone call, and then she went to the prison and and met him and spent a couple hours with him, and uh, she absolutely loves the guy. He what she learned was that he was 19 years old, he was an immigrant from Uruguay illegally in the country, suffering from severe depression, was suicidal, wanted to take his life, but he couldn't do it. So he thought, if I take someone else's life, someone's life, that will be a terrible enough action that I'll be able to pull the trigger on myself. And they caught him before he killed himself. And uh, he's now a grown man, and uh, they're best of friends. She's forgiven him. She's had his family over for dinner, uh, communicates with his mother. And she just said, I have so much joy in my life from letting go of that anger and hatred towards him and towards Hispanics. And, uh, and so I think that, you know, we can say shooting someone is horrible and offending someone is, is wrong and crime is wrong and maybe using illicit drugs, whatever, those actions are wrong. But uh, I think to judge that person as being a bad person rather than they're engaged in some bad acts. And their whole race is bad because I see him doing this. That's the, that's the challenge. Right, right. But right. to judge acts is, yeah, there are some acts that are great, some that are terrible. Right. We should not engage in those. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So um, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. It does make sense. It does make sense. It was. Um, it makes absolute sense. Um, and you've just covered another one. Like, forgive, forgive one another. Um, share, and you, you've got share our good fortune, care for the needy. Um, yeah, is there anything else, any stories else you'd like to, to share from some of the other truths? Well, just the, the one concept of sharing what we have is research there was just fascinating to me. The religious leaders and the philosophers have always said, don't get attached to material things. They don't make us happy in the long run. They're temporary. Um, but the research is very, very clear. If we love material things and our quest is to gather and hoard and keep material things and we're not willing to share, we're far less happy than if we share what we have. There's quite a few studies that show that money helps us up to a certain point, but beyond that point, which is the point where we can meet our basic needs, 
But beyond that point, more money doesn't do anything at all for our happiness. In fact, it sometimes uh, leads to unhappiness. And uh, so being willing to share our possessions, uh, being willing to uh, say, hey, I like this, I need this, but I, this person needs it also, so I'm going to share it with this person, just produces a great amount of joy in our lives. And I, you know, I had an interesting experience, uh, kind of two experiences with this. My uh, sister died this year. She was 54 years old. She was a police officer, and she died of a heart attack. And she never married, so she didn't have any children. And so her siblings, we inherited her estate. And we went into her home, and uh, she had uh, more things than you can ever imagine. She, she loved holidays, so she had a room full of Halloween decorations and well, a room full of Easter decorations. And we had to figure out what, what are we going to do with all this stuff. And we ended up giving it all away. And we all, I think we all went home saying, you know what, we're not going to have our homes full of stuff. And we all kind of decluttered <laughs> and scaled way back. And uh, then we remodeled our home shortly after that. And we had to move everything out of our closets and our kitchens. And so the painters and the floor, flooring company could get in there. And when we went to put it all back, we said, we're going to sort through this. And if we're not using it regularly and we don't need it, we're not going to keep it. We gave away probably 80% of our possessions and our home is really clean and decluttered and it's joyful to walk in there. And, you know, I gave away suits and things I hadn't worn for 10 years. And uh, so the, the research is clear that uh, becoming really attached to material things does not increase happiness. It even can decrease it. And being willing to share what we have with others that we're all one community uh, produces greater joy. It's that simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I do know, and I don't. I know that feeling myself of when I, when I just give yeah you know, perfectly good things away, right? There's just some, yeah. There's 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 a joy that comes with it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And um, there's a couple of pairs of yoga shorts I've got. I did yoga in there, and I'm not wearing them, so I just gave them away. They're they're they're, they're perfectly good. But I, I gave them away this morning, and uh, yeah, just instantly gave me a, a feeling of gratification because they're, they're perfectly good. They're sort of as new and I know somebody else will get some joy from them. So that's why you're smiling so big this morning. <laughs> 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 exactly. exactly. It's, uh, it's uh, yeah, it's important. The other, the other query I've got here is, is the role of God or connection to a higher power or so that, that seems to not be here, right? One of the, one of the truths isn't, build a connection with something beyond is is there a reason that that that's not not in the book you know again the reason uh i did not include those kind of spiritual or mystical concepts because i wanted it to be a book that everyone could read and accept regardless of what their beliefs were Mm. but there is you know i am definitely a believer have faith and and there is quite a bit of research uh at least amongst high school, college students, that if these students have a faith, they believe in something, God and something that's eternal, they're 62% less likely to ever contemplate suicide, Mm. whether they practice or not in that faith. If they actually practice in that faith, so which means they go to their meetings regularly and they interact with that community, they're 82% less likely to ever consider suicide. So having a belief in a purpose, a divine purpose for being on earth, and that there's a reason for this experience and that we're connected to something afterwards that, yeah, that that's a big factor. 
but you know, I wanted the book to be uh, sort of uh, non-religious and more uh, practical and, and show that these great leaders have given us some really valuable concepts, hoping it would, it would appeal to a broader audience. Right. Yeah. I guess so there's some um, practical logic in, uh, in leaving, that one, leaving that one out. Yeah. And, and I, I've also found, I don't know, that as I, because I've been an atheist for periods of my life, and I've found that as I've kind of straightened myself out, got c- cleaner and, and, and healthier, I, I find naturally what's emerged is this, this greater sense of wonderment and a receptivity to, oh, I mean, you know, there's, there could be something out there and, and starting to have a sense of connection of something greater. So it, it feels like that th- these practices would support that, whether or not anybody sort of ends up there or not. Uh, I guess it's another matter, but. That's been my experience. Yeah, one of the interesting things I found from the, uh, the European philosophers of the 15th century is the idea of perennial philosophy. And they believe that uh, there is some uh, higher power. It's a, you could say it's a force field or a force of nature or God or a supreme being or whatever, but there's a force uh, in this world that if we seek happiness and civil communities and we look for answers we all get the same answers from that energy source whether it be ah. god or whatever it is and that's why you know the hindu sages and buddha and muhammad and jesus and the philosophers all got the same answers about how we can be happier as human beings living on this planet right right yeah okay that makes that makes that makes a lot of sense to me um the, the other question i had was about um dealing with trauma or, or healing. Because um, again, from my own experience, I've found that doing that work, allowing myself to grieve old pain, um, and, and it's sort of related to that Hindu idea of the samskara, right? These imprints in our system that um, we can release, right? And I think that's sort of, to me at least, synonymous with the Western idea of, of trauma and the ability to release trauma. To what extent do you think that's important in becoming happier? Yeah, I think that trauma is a part of growth. It's part of earth life. We're not going to ever escape trauma and hardships. And it's, you know, I look back on my life, it's the hard things I had to suffer through that have helped me build the character that I have. It's not the easy things. Mm. And so trauma on earth is a part of earth life. And I think learning to overcome that, deal with it is, is really powerful. Um, it's interesting though, this one group that I work with, the Other Side Academy, they're all you know, convicted felons, uh, drug addicts, and convicted felons. They have a really interesting program that they come into the, this program and, and uh, they believe the concept that heals them is called act as if. Right. So they teach them how to act like decent people act. And they don't let them talk about their past. Like they can't talk about how they were the meanest, baddest guy in the prison system or how they led the white gang. They just, they all take jobs in these companies. They build their own companies. They have a moving company, they have a construction company, they have, you know, catering companies and they, they come and they all work and they just act like they're decent people. And they, they, they talk about what that means. Uh, Act like you're honest, you become honest, act like you're loving, you become loving, act like you're decent, you become decent. And then after a year, they're able to, their year anniversary, they're able to talk about, you know, their past. And most of them go, oh, that's not me anymore. And they don't even, it's gone, you know, (laughs) it's, so there's this, when I studied, uh, you know, 
therapy, psychotherapy, there's this big debate that, you know, one group says psychotherapy, you lay on a couch or talk to a therapist for two years. And then two years later, you know why you're sick, but you're still sick. Right. And the other extreme is, hey, just go out and start acting as if and, and just learn how to be a different person. And eventually that becomes you. And so I think there's a balance there of looking at your past and dealing with trauma and figuring out what happened and why and learning to release it, but also taking actions to become something different. Uh, they're both important. Right. Yeah. 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 No, that, that makes sense. I think in my experience, what I found was I, I was sitting on a couch and I was crying with the therapist. But as a result of that release, I became more virtuous and happier because I just yeah. wasn't as triggered by my environment. And so I was less, off, less likely to engage in destructive behaviors. Yeah, um, I think a combination of uh, searching through your past and your life and figuring out where things came from, especially these self-perceptions, where did they come from? Uh, why do you feel the way you do about yourself? And then learning to uh, move on and become something different. It's, that's an important process. Mm -hmm. Talk about forgiveness again a bit more. I know we've already talked a little bit about forgiveness. That's one of the truths. But in the book, you talk about different types of forgiveness. I thought it was quite it was kind of an, an important idea. I wonder if you could elaborate. Well, yeah, I think there's a misconception that um, forgiveness means you you know, you do it for the other person and that then you have to develop a relationship with them. But forgiveness is something we do for ourselves. Uh, the research is quite clear. As we, if we hold on to anger and we refuse to let go, that it kind of cankers our souls. It's like drinking a poison ourselves and then waiting for the guy over there to die. But the guy over there could care less if you're mad at him or her, you know, it's not hurting them. And uh, so the, the research is pretty clear that uh, you know, forgiveness is something we do for ourselves to heal ourselves. And uh, we don't even really need to interact. We don't need to reestablish re a relationship with someone that's hurt us. We don't need to reestablish a relationship with someone that has abused us. But we have to let go of the, the, that terrible anchor that's cankering our own soul and say, hey, I can change and I hope they change someday. But I'm not going to I'm not going to hold on to this emotion because it's causing all kinds of chemical reactions. It's affecting me physically physiologically yeah and so it's something we do for ourselves uh it doesn't in, in the, it involves you know several steps of you know what happened why did it happen why do i feel the way that i do can i cut this person some slack and know that uh they will be different in the future they can be different and i'm going to just let it go and you know uh there's some steps that people can take that therapists recommend you know forgiving others or forgiving ourselves one one of the things we have to do is forgive ourselves, which is harder, I think, yeah. than forgiving other mm -hmm. people. And so they have some things that we can do to learn to move on. And uh, it just makes us healthier. It makes us happier. It makes us uh, healthier emotionally and physically to not hold on to, to anger or hard feelings. And it's interesting. Uh, Buddha was really big on this. He had the concept of impermanence, that nothing is ever the same from day to day that our physical world is changing, that we're all changing. And there's a story, uh, I wasn't able to confirm that it actually came from Buddha, but there's a story in Buddhism where uh, he was sitting talking with some of his followers, his disciples, and a man came by and started screaming at him, and spit on him and yelled at him and told him he was a horrible man. And then he walked on and uh, his disciples were concerned that he didn't 
he didn't take the guy on, you know, he didn't fight with him. And the next day the guy comes back and he says to him, he says, Hey, what's next, my friend. And he goes, what do you mean? He says, what's next? What are you going to do next? And then he walked away. And then the next day he came back and said, he apologized that he had said what he said because he, what he had heard about Buddha, not because of anything that he had seen the Buddha do. And so Buddha's point is that we're all changing and let's let him change. Let's not fixate him in a certain place because of an, a one act that we saw. And he has this cool concept. He says there's three kinds of people in the world. There's people that are like a line etched in stone. It's kind of a permanent line, hard to go away. There are people that are like a line etched in sand, and eventually it goes away and dissipates. And then there are people that are like a line etched in water, that it, it quickly goes away. And the key is to learn to not take offense in the first place. But we're all works in progress. I offend you, you offend me. Uh, I hope someday, I know you can be different someday. I hope that you are and will be, and I'm not going to hold this against you. And uh, so that's, you know, what I've learned about forgiveness in these readings. Yeah, I love that. I love that story. Um, the other idea I really loved, it came across for the first time, which I think connects to one of the, the truths in terms of care for the needy, um, is this idea from Confucius Ren. <laughs> I really yeah. Talk about that. I'd not heard of that before. Ren uh, Confucius was an amazing guy. He's had a bigger influence on Asia and the world, probably than anyone, his philosophical concepts. And, and historians say that he didn't create any of these. That was the culture at the time. But he was able to articulate it, and it was, able, it was put in writing as a result of his teachings. But Ren um, is a concept of uh, being an overall decent individual of being warm, caring for others, believing in community, wanting to contribute. It's a, it's a kind of a catch-all word for being a decent citizen and making a contribution. Uh, it's more than just being kind or doing good deeds. It's, it's the overall development of a character that adds value to a, a neighborhood and to a community through decency and kindness and giving and serving. Mm. And is there a particular story that comes to mind that best embodies that idea of rent? Well, I, yeah, I think uh, one of my very finest friends uh, exemplified that his whole life. His name is John Brewer. And he was uh, hit by a car and paralyzed when he was 23 years old. And he was uh, quite an avid surfer. He was on his way to Hawaii to participate in competitions and was hit by a car. And uh, uh, he was this real confident guy. He kept saying, I'm going to walk out of this rehabilitation center. And finally, a doctor said, John, you got to face reality. Your spine, spinal cord has been severed. You're not ever walking out of here. He said, my goal for you is to get you to sit up in a chair by yourself, maybe push yourself around. And he got so depressed that he just, he just said, I don't want to live like, I don't want to live in a wheelchair. I don't want to live as a paralyzed individual. And he had a good surfing buddy. His nickname was Sticky Jimmy. And Sticky Jimmy made a, a substance you put on surfboards to hold your feet on the board to make it a little stickier. And Jimmy comes to the rehab center and kind of breaks him out, takes him, carries him out to the car and drives him down to the beach. And they sit there and uh, they both start crying, knowing they're never going to surf together again. And, and uh, John said when they started he saw his friend crying and he started crying that the tears formed prisms and he saw all the colors of the rainbow out on the water. 
you know, pink and yellow and orange and green and purple. And he had this epiphany that, that he could do this, that, that he could live as a decent person in a wheelchair, that could, he, he could have a good life. And as he started trying to figure out how to do that, he realized that he had to completely get over himself and had to think about others all day and how he could contribute value to their lives. Because when he thought about his condition, he got real depressed. Mm. And so he started, you know, being really a light in the rehab center, talking to the nurses and the doctors, being more concerned about their lives, their happiness than himself. And he just created a lifestyle of giving. He became a teacher eventually. He was able to have some children, got married. And being with him was like sitting down with, you know, a wise sage or like the Buddha himself. He was just so bright. You could feel the love was actually palpable. You could feel it. And uh, he was one of my great role models. Unfortunately, he just recently passed away. But, um, you know, he was, he was one that I say exhibited Ren his entire life from his injury on. And it's interesting that he's, he's told me many times that he would not be the kind of person he was if he hadn't been paralyzed in that accident. Mm. So the challenge is for us, you and I and others, is how do we become like John Brewer without having to go through a tragedy like that? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a really powerful, powerful story. Reminds me a little bit. If you're familiar with Ram Das, the, the sort of the yeah. spiritual yeah, teacher yeah. who was paralyzed late in life. And you see that guy in the documentaries towards the end of his life when he's, I think he's half paralyzed, isn't he? Half of his body. And he's just absolutely beaming, right? It's, it's almost as if that took him to another level of his spiritual development. What John said is, you know, his whole image before talking about ego or perceptions was this tall, handsome, guy that was a avid surfer and you know everyone liked him he had lots of friends and when he ended up just sitting in a wheelchair he had to look inside and figure out who he really was mm. and he developed a whole new perception of who he was and shed that old ego basically and became you know this wonderful incredible influential man yeah yeah and of the of the six truths uh for you Personally, Mike, what would you what would you say is the one that I know is the, has the, has the most impact on your life, or that you lean on the most? You know, I think the the idea of constantly looking for good deeds, doing good deeds with strangers, random acts of kindness, and then uh, maybe at a deeper level, finding someone that really needs our help that might be suffering, and and just focusing on others and going out and being a bright light in the world smiling, saying hi to people, uh, doing what we can, uh, is the one that I, that I work on. And it seems to bring me the most joy. And I mentioned this in the book that whether you believe in God or a supreme being, being or not, I think that when we really reflect on who we can help today, we, we seem to get answers. Uh, those are the prayers that are answered the most, as opposed to saying, God, give me this or give me that. Or I want this job. Or <laughs> that, that Ferrari comes a little slower. But if we say, you know, if you're a believer in God, how can I contribute today? Give me some, some feelings about who might need me. It's a pretty, pretty good day. And you have a lot of really interesting, powerful experiences. And you realize, you know, that, uh, that we, we have value. You know, I, this quick story, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I was in a restaurant in Kansas when we were traveling across the country. and We had this wonderful waitress and uh, 
she told me she had just moved to the city and it was her birthday uh, tomorrow and she was going to go hike a mountain. And uh, I just sensed some sorrow in her eyes, you know, uh, and I gave her a very big check, you know, it's way bigger than the meal. It's five, 10 times bigger than what the meal cost. And she started crying and uh, thanked me. And then she, she looked me up. She found me through social media and told me that she had just been through a tragic relationship. She was depressed and she was trying to decide if she wanted to, what she wanted in life, if she wanted to live. And that my act of kindness completely reframed her that the world is good and that there are people that care. And, uh, you know, I just felt impressed wow. to do that. So we can have experiences like that every day if we want to. Yeah. Yeah. What a powerful story. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a reminder, and again, of how simple this stuff is. Right? If we if we can just ask ourselves, right, how can I be kind today? Who could I help today? That's so simple, isn't it? It's pretty basic, pretty basic stuff. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Okay, well, um, is there is there just as we, we we close out here? Is there any any anything you'd like to share? We haven't touched on that you'd like to impart from from this journey. You know, I I would just say that I I've seen these concepts work in so many lives, uh, convicted felons, women rescued from the slave trade, people living in poverty in the Philippines and Africa and Latin America. And people do, do them and they make a difference. And some of the poorest people I know around the world are some of the happiest because they practice these concepts. And so the value is, again, they work in real time. Um, they make a difference today if we do them today. And uh, that's what's so awesome about them. And they work for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. So my message is, again, just try it and see what happens. Keep a journal, take some notes, try it, see what happens. Great. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. And we'll put a, we'll put a link to the book, One People, One Planet, Six Universal Truths for Being Happy Together. Uh, and uh, yeah, the, the website you mentioned, just, just share that again for our listeners if they want to uh, yeah, get into the programs that you're offering. Yeah, it's, it's the same name as the book, onepeopleoneplanet.com. Onepeopleoneplanet.com, right. You can see videos of all these people, David DeRocher, Seisnar, John Brewer. We, so we have a whole hours of videos of therapists, social workers, doctors. Uh, you know, we have a full program of how you can develop these six principles into your life with really inspiring messages. Mm. Yeah. Okay, wonderful. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Uh, um, yeah, I, well, you're, you're, you're an embodiment of uh, the power of these principles, right? You're, you're beaming. It's, uh, <laughs> it's wonderful to be with you. Uh, you. You seem to be like to be an extraordinarily happy soul. So uh, you're walking your talk. Well, thanks for having me. I, I love talking to you. And I hope that our conversation helps some people. Thank you. All right. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.